Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Saturday, March 2nd, 2019, here on WSOE 89.3, Elon Burlington, or After the Fact on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts. An action-packed show coming your way here from 5 o'clock until 7 o'clock, give or take. Um, Bunch of news in the MLB and the NBA, so without further ado, let's just get right into it, and let's get right into it with the biggest news in the entire sports world in the last couple days, and that is the signing of Bryce Harper by the Philadelphia Phillies for 13 years, $330 million, with full no-trade clause and no opt-outs. And so... You are going to get, there's a ton of reactions and takeaways you can have from this signing. And the one that sticks out to me is how low, relative, relatively low, the Phillies were able to get Harper's AAV down to on this deal. At a 13-year deal for $330 million, it obviously showed that the priority on Harper's end was not the per-year figure. It was to eclipse the greatest guaranteed contract in baseball history set by Giancarlo Stanton on his 13-year $325 million deal. Harper beat that by $5 million. But in doing so, his per-year salary is at just over $25 million a year, which relative for baseball is not that high. You know, if he wanted to go the average ad- the average annual value route, he could have signed with the Dodgers, who reportedly were willing to offer him a three- or four-year contract for upwards of $40 million per year. Um, but he said in his press conference today with the Phillies, through all sorts of reports, the priority for Harper was to get a long contract to settle down and really get his roots with one franchise for the rest of his career, um, fully commit to that franchise, and sort of serve almost as a recruiting pitch to potential free agents to join him. But getting that average annual value, average annual value, words, average annual value down to around twenty-five million a year is great for the Phillies. In that, moving forward, going out into the marketplace trying to sign more free agents, um, extending their own guys like Reese Hoskins or Aaron Nola eventually, re-signing J.T. Realmuto in a couple years. They now have more flexibility moving forward as far as the luxury tax is concerned. Because I think they structured it in a way where he's making 26 for the majority of the contract. The last couple of years, he's making 22. This year, the salary is only 10 mil with a $20 million signing bonus. So they've given themselves a lot of leeway to be able to go out and in two years pursue Mike Trout to give Reese Hoskins the huge extension that, if his play continues the way it has, will be coming to him. The um, next contract contract for Aranola after the extension they just signed him to ends in five years. They have the ability to go out and not really have to worry as greatly about the luxury tax as they would have had he commanded or desired to have a, a high average annual value to his contract. So I thought the Phillies, even though 13 years is a very long time, I think the trade-off of getting the salary down to 25 mil was excellent. Excellent work by the Phillies. 
excellent work by Matt Klintak there. Now, moving off of that, you look at the Phillies offseason as a whole. I didn't I wasn't crazy about the signing of Andrew McCutcheon. I like him as a player, don't get me wrong, but a three year deal a three year deal at fifty one mil, seventeen million a year for a guy who is, you know, on the back end of his career. He's a very solid player. Played great for the Yankees last year, played well for the Giants before that last year. By year three of that contract, how effective is he really gonna be? I know he gets on base, I know he plays good defense. I just don't like paying three fifty one for a guy who you know, is a slightly above average player who is in his later years. But for this year, it's fine. Um, adding Gene Segura, who is a stud, all-star caliber shortstop. JT Realmuto, who is the best all-around catcher in the league. Mr. Dependable reliever David Robertson, who I really think that's the most underrated signing this whole offseason. That guy is a safety blanket of safety blankets out of the bullpen. And they only got, I think it was only two for about 23 or so. Excellent deal. Um, you have improved your defense, which was one of the league's worst last year, inherently by moving Hoskins to first, putting a good defender in McCutcheon and left. Harper is not a great defender, but having Reese Hoskins at first and Andrew McCutcheon in left, and Harper being you know a, an average fielder with Oduble in center, your outfield defense is improved. Your infield defense, um, Segura at short, as opposed to Kingry at short last year, who really isn't a shortstop. He's a utility guy who, if really being honest, is more suited to play second or third. Cesar Hernandez is a solid defender. Hoskins is fine at first. And as we mentioned, Real Muto is a great defensive catcher. So they've improved their defense. Obviously, offensively, I mean, you're adding Bryce Harper and Citizens Bank Park. Citizens Bank Park is tailor-made for Bryce Harper. He's going to rake in that ballpark. So the real question here, in terms of answering how good are the Phillies, is... What they do between now and the trade deadline, as far as their starting pitching is concerned. You know, they could probably use another reliever also, uh, but I don't think that's as much of a pressing need as their starting rotation. Whether they address that need before the regular season starts, or whether they make a move towards the trade deadline, it is inevitable they're going to have to add another starter. Because, simply put, the starting rotation they have right now with um, you have Aaron Nola, Jake Arrieta, Zach Eflin, Vince Velasquez, and Nick Pavetta. Vince Velasquez is probably more suited to be a reliever. And Nick Pavetta is solid. And Zach Eflin is solid. But you want one more steady presence in there when you're making a playoff push. In a playoff series out of seven or five, I don't have confidence in that starting rotation. Dallas Keuchel is the best starter out there. He's been linked to them for a little bit. I am not crazy about Keuchel. You know, at 31 years old, um, I think he's deteriorated a little bit. He's going to deteriorate over the course of his next contract. I think you'd be paying really for past performance in paying Keuchel over a long period of time. However, if there were to be a scenario where they could get him on a two-year deal with some sort of mutual option for a third year, I think that would be in their best interest. But... Going more than three years on Keuchel, I don't think I don't think it's worth it just for what it provides you or what he will provide you this year and next before he went downhill. Uh, but if they could get two with a mutual option for three, I think it's worth it on Keuchel. If not, you know, if I were them, I would just go into this year with this starting rotation and try to make a trade as the season goes along. Because otherwise, the options that are available in free agency at the moment really just are not that appealing. But 
unless they add another starting pitcher, I see them as the second best team in the division. Um, I think Washington's third. I know that losing Harper is unfortunate, but Juan Soto and Victor Robles are going to be able to replace him. They added a solid starter in Patrick Corbin to put number three behind Scherzer and Strasburg at one and two. I think they're the third best team in the league, or in the NL East. I think the Braves, the reigning division champs at one, are still in that boat. The Phillies add another starting pitcher who's a high-quality starting pitcher, though. I think the Phillies take the division. Um, but that's really my whole stance on the Bryce Harper signing and the Phillies. Um, real, uh, real small tidbit on Manny Machado. I would say that it was really interesting to me, and I think it was smart, that the Padres and the White Sox pursued Harper and Machado and then ultimately for the Padres ended up signing Machado because these guys are 26 years old, superstar quality players. And free agents of their caliber do not become available at the age of 26, rarely if ever. And you look at these teams, these are both teams who have a ton of prospects, they're building up their teams, and in a year or two or three, aim to be competitive teams. And that's when all their prospects will be up and the, their team will be fully fleshed out. So, in two or three years from now, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are 28, and 29 year, 28 years old or 29 years old. They're in the primes of their careers. You're taking a superstar player in his prime and putting that alongside all of your just-coming-up prospects who you will have on the cheap to offset uh, the high salaries to Harper and Machado. In the Machado case, um, you know, once Tatis comes up, this year after they keep him down to get an extra year of service. I mean, Tatis and Machado is your left side of the infield. That's incredible. And it would have made sense for the White Sox if they had signed year of these guys as well. But just the age factor coinciding with the um, teams having these prospects who are about to come up in the next year or two and to be competitive in the next year or two, it made a ton of sense. And I really, really commend the Padres for shelling out the amount of money that they did to get Machado. Excellent signing. So that's all that we're going to have on the baseball end for this show. Let's move over to the hardwood. Let's go to the NBA. And the first thing that I want to address with the NBA, and I think it's a pressing thing to talk about, the Los Angeles Lakers and their playoff push, uh, or playoff hopes, we'll call them. So as of right now, the Lakers sit three games back from the eighth spot, they are in 10th. Sacramento's in 9th. Minnesota's starting to make a little bit of noise. They're right back there at 11th. And it's really funny because, you know, um, the whole... Now, all right. If LeBron did not get hurt for that month between December and January, would the Lakers be in the top eight? I think they would be. However, that's not what actually occurred, so we can't play what-ifs. I don't see the Lakers being able to make the playoffs. I think right now, with that three-game deficit, with their remaining schedule, I just don't think it's going to happen. First off, they have already lost the season series with San Antonio, who's in there at the eight seed. Now, I know that it's very tight between the Spurs and the Clippers, but as of right now, San Antonio is at eight. They have the season series over the Lakers, and they don't play again the rest of the year. The Lakers, the rest of the year, play the Clippers twice, which are huge games. Huge games. The Clippers win both those games. Right there, that could be the end of the Lakers season. So you have two games against the Clippers. You have a game against Denver. 
game against Boston, a game against Toronto, a game against Milwaukee, a game against Sacramento, two games against Utah, a game against Oklahoma City, a game against Golden State, and then the last game of the year is against Portland. Now, a saving grace for them is that towards the end of the year, or at the end of the year, um, their last five games are at Staples Center. Four of those are home games. One of them, they are the technical away team against the Clippers. But in reality, those are five games at their home arena to end the season. Uh, Sacramento is a half game ahead of them right now at that nine spot. Sacramento really, really suffered a critical loss last night, losing to the Clippers. I had thought, you know, for the longest time that Sacramento would get in there and the Clippers would fall out. But Sacramento, you know, every game at this point is a much win for these types of teams. And with Bagley out for at least one to two weeks, that's a huge loss. And last night they lost to the Clippers. I, I don't know. I think it might be tough for the Kings to get in there. And I think at this point, the eight teams that we have in that Western Conference playoff picture, you know, maybe the Clippers and Spurs move around at seven and eight. I think those are the eight playoff teams that we end up having out of the Western Conference. Um, but having already lost that season series to San Antonio, having all of these really, really difficult games in this last stretch of the season, I can't see the clip or the Lakers being able to make up this three-game deficit, especially when that three-game deficit is made up against a team who they do not own the tiebreaker over. The odds are stacked against them. Now, there are some positive signs, though, that we're seeing recently with them. A few. You know, Brandon Ingram is someone who I have been a proponent of for, for some time. And he's a guy who, you know, he shows these flashes where he's this Kevin Durant light scorer, right? And he can just get to the bucket at will. And he just looks like the this next generate the next top star as far as being an all-around scoring wing in the league. And then there's times where the guy just plays aimlessly, and you have and it just seems that he has all this talent and he can't put it together. Um, he's been playing very, very well of late. He seems to be figuring things out. Now, you still want him to be able to shoot the ball from deep consistently, but you know, with New Orleans' reluctance to trade Anthony Davis to the Lakers, assuming that no other major star becomes available for trade, the development of Brandon Ingram is going to be incredibly crucial to the tenure that LeBron has with the Lakers. Because assuming that their only option to add another star is through free agency, which at this point it does not appear they have a great route to being able to sign any of the top free agents this offseason, then it turns into, all right, we have Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, and Lonzo Balls, our best young players. We need one of these guys to really take it to a, to improve and take it to another level. And out of those three, you know, Brandon Ingram is the one who has the most potential. Brandon Ingram has to be that secondary star, assuming they are unable to trade for another star or sign another star. Because it is very possible that this Lakers team, who I don't think is going to make the playoffs for the aforementioned schedule reasons and tiebreaker reasons, goes into next year without having signed a top free agent, without having traded for a star player, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure with a shifting of role players, but they could very well go into next season with this group of LeBron and then the young guys with a young guy needing to step up, that's going to be your main group next year again. I could very well see that because 
I don't see really any way that New Orleans trades Anthony Davis to the Lakers. You know, I think it's going to Boston. And if not Boston, I think the Knicks or the Clippers would trade for him before New Orleans would trade him to the Lakers. I just can't see it happening. I I would put it at a 0.5% chance. So you take Anthony Davis out of the equation. Um, Does Washington make Bradley Beal available? In that case, then that gives you a start to trade for. But in this window between now and the offseason going into next year, the ability to get a you know secondary star for LeBron does not appear to be clear. Tobias Harris, you know, with the Sixers, the Sixers are going to max him out. He's not going to be on the market. Jimmy Butler is a possibility because even if the Sixers are willing to give him a big max, I don't see it being the five-year max. And really, he is the guy who is sacrificing the most in his role on this team with this big four they have now. He could be a headstrong guy who could want to go somewhere where he'll have a greater role. So that's an option. Uh, Kemba Walker, I think he's either staying on Charlotte or he's going to the Knicks. You know, Kevin Durant's not going there. You go through the list. The, Kawhi seems to prefer the Clippers. You go through the list. Those options really dwindle. So it's really dependent on Brandon Ingram really taking it to that next level. Kyle Kuzma continuing uh, to be a very solid prototypical stretch four in the league. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of Lonzo Ball. Obviously, he's been hurt for some time. But those three guys' development is going to be so crucial, and especially Ingram, not only for the fact of if they don't trade for a guy, if they don't trade Ingram, you know, he is in that 2016 draft class. The offseason after this, I believe, 2020, Brandon Ingram's going to need that second contract. So you're going to have to pay, you know, a decent amount to keep Brandon Ingram and you're not going to want to do that and take away flexibility. I mean, they're going to anyway, but in a perfect world, you'd rather not take away flexibility and re-sign Ingram if Ingram has not become what you thought he was supposed to be. It's going to happen regardless, but for their sake, they really, really have to depend on Ingram to take it to that next level. Let's move it along back to current um, occurrences in the NBA. Um, Take it from the West where I just mentioned the playoff race, the Lakers' hopes. Um, and the Kings' hopes, which, unfortunately, I think the Kings' hopes are dwindling at this point. Let's go to the Eastern Conference, and let's talk about the young player who has been dazzling the league for the last uh, 10 days or so, and that is Atlanta's Trey Young. Last night, man, that Chicago-Atlanta game, that four-overtime game, you know, one of the best, worst games I've ever watched. You know, um, kudos to Atlanta for getting the loss. Um, but what an incredible game from Trey Young. Um, let's just go through last night's game, and then let's go through his previous four games before that. So last night's game, 49-16-8, and and he didn't have a good start to the game. He just went crazy in the second half, and especially in the fourth quarter. Um, February 27th, they played Minnesota. He had 36-10-8. February 25th, he played Houston. He had 36-8. February 23rd, they played the Suns. He had a coldish game from three, only had 23-8. and eight. And then on February 22nd, they played the Pistons. He had 30-10-3. So, Trey Young was this super polarizing prospect when he was on Oklahoma last year, through the draft process this past summer, and into this year. And the, you know, I had always been a proponent of his. Um... 
Yes, the defense is terrible, and it may never get past that level based on his ability and based on the fact that he's very small. But what you see from what you could have seen from Trey Young, I think a lot of people harped on the shooting, and they thought that he was just a one-dimensional guy who had to take a ton of shots, and if he had a good game and he got hot, he'd have an efficient game, or he would just be wildly inefficient and just chuck up a ton of shots. He is so much more than that, and always was, and what we've seen in this last stretch has really, really exemplified and emphasized that, because, sure, he's taken a ton of shots, and yes, he's been hitting a lot of them, but this guy, he always talks about how he tries to model himself after Steve Nash even though Curry is the comp that he gets. Trey Young is an excellent passer and an excellent playmaker and creator. This is a guy who does have traits. You know, No one is Steve Nash as far as being a playmaker or creator besides Steve Nash, but he has traits of being that elite level facilitator and playmaker. And then on top of that, he has these games where you know he gets the comparison to Curry because of the ability to just jack up threes at any point from any range. And that is, you know, that's a valid comparison. But he has these abilities to just, you know, turn a game on its head and completely take over a game with his scoring. And even though Kyrie, uh, the guy who it reminds me of is Kyrie Irving in a way, where Kyrie can kind of just, you know, kind of just take over a game and the game just slows down for him, and offensively, he just gets every shot that he wants and just takes the game completely over. That is what I see. Now, obviously, add in the flair of three-point shooting that Steph Curry possesses, but Trey Young has an ability to shoot the ball. He has had an above-average ability to get to the rim since we've seen in college and in summer league and this season. We're seeing the traits of that Steve Nash modeling Um, With passing the ball, he's a top-notch creator and playmaker. He can jack up from three at any range, and he can get to the rim at will. So he has the ability to just, as a point guard, scoring point guard, in in the scoring sense, he has the ability, like Kyrie Irving, to completely take over a game offensively. Has the ability of an elite level passer to distribute and make those around him better and find good looks for his teammates. And has the ability of Steph Curry and the trait of Steph Curry where you got to be on his hip at all times because if you're not on Trey Young's hip and you give him a tiny bit of room, he's just going to launch it. Um, the shot in the fourth quarter last night, right before, um, so it was one twenty one one twenty one, and Trey had and he had the ball and he was his his handle's unbelievable. Also, another trait that is very reminiscent of Kyrie. And he's crossing the ball over, he's crossing the ball over, he's crossing the ball over, and he just cuts this kind of super quick release, high arc three from deep, swishes it, buries it. Now, unfortunately, Atlanta committed a foul on the other end, uh, which led to three free throws. Um, I think Otto Porter got fouled by Dwayne Dedman, uh, and it ended up being tied at 124 and going to what ended up being four overtimes. Then there was the play, I believe it was the end of the first or second overtime, where Young got the ball basically went coast to coast, got that layup to tie it and send it to another overtime. His speed is top-notch. He's His stature, he can stay very low to the ground. And he has that good center of gravity. I, I'm just a huge proponent of Trey Young's. Because, yes, when you become, or when Atlanta becomes a playoff contending team, they're going to have to find a way defensively to be able to hide Young's deficiencies on the defensive side of the ball. That's just a fact and inevitability. 
But he is showing, through his passing, shooting, and ability to get to the rim, that this is going to be an elite-level offensive force in the league for years to come. And for all the talk about how him he's a chucker, or um, guys may not like playing with him, or whatever, that's just a bunch of crap. Trey Young is a very, very good player. Trey Young is going to be an even better player than he is now. And what we've seen over these last 10 days is just a glimpse of what is to come. I'm very excited for when Atlanta gets to that next level and can become a playoff contending team. Um, and speaking of Atlanta, just going further on this Trey Young thing, if we look back at that trade between the Hawks and the Mavericks, now I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that you know Atlanta won the trade or anything because of recency bias. It's not. They should have definitely taken Luka Doncic. I am not disputing that whatsoever. However, what I am saying is that Rather than, you know, having actually seen all the things that those who are proponents of Trey Young, including myself, had talked about for so long, come to fruition at a high level so far in the NBA. Yes, they should have taken Doncic. Travis Schlenk said himself on Adrian Wojnarowski's podcast that if they stayed at three, they would have taken Doncic. But if you look at it, Yes, Luka Doncic is great and is going to be a star. Dallas is the seventh worst worst team in the league right now. That pick, obviously, top five protected. But if you could turn Luka Doncic into Trey Young and either Sekou Dombia or Jared Culver or DeAndre Hunter or Nasir Little, you know, that's not necessarily a huge, it's not a huge loss at all. Because, yeah, you don't get the superstar in Doncic, but you're getting two very high-quality young players. You're in a vacuum, turning the third overall pick into fifth, and then at what this point right now, before the lottery, would be the seventh overall pick. That's not bad. It's not bad. And what the Trey Young trade did, which is something that you've seen through all of these um, trades and signings and draft picks that Travis Schlenk has made, is Atlanta is going for this identity of a youthful, modern NBA game. They play with a ton of pace um, and speed. They play a fast game. Uh, I think Sacramento is the only team that has a higher pace than them so far this season. But they play with speed, they play fast, they play energetic, um, and they just shoot a ton of threes. And they wanted to have this offensive juggernaut style of play where teams would have to really fight to, one, keep up with them, and two, be able to guard all these perimeter threats that they have. Heck, even Dwayne Dedman is even shooting threes for them at this point. So... What Trey Young does is Trey Young perfectly encapsulates the identity and style of play that Travis Schlenk is building out in this team. What better player suits the model of a really fast three-point shooting, moving the ball team than Trey Young? He perfectly facilitates um, and spearheads that style of play. And... If you look at the Hawks as a whole and where they stand right now, 
they're in a very, very, very attractive position as far as their future is concerned. You know, this year, based on the moves made, you know, they are in a tier above those worst teams in the league, like the Knicks, Suns, Cavs, and Bulls. They're the fifth worst team in the league by a pretty decent margin between four and five. Um, they've, as I mentioned, they have that identity in place. They know the style of play that they want to carry out. They know the type of players that they want to acquire, and they can now having Trey Young, having John Collins, having Kevin Herter, DeAndre Bembry, Torian Prince, all these guys that fit this mold. They can continue to build out this style of team. Now, the only caveat I say before I go into a ton of positives about the Hawks is I think, though, that they're definitely lacking on the defensive side of the ball as far as the um, building blocks of their team are concerned. You know, John Collins, solid. Herter, getting to Herter is not bad. But outside of that, the young building blocks of this team do not have that, you know, high proficiency on the defensive side of the ball. So I do get a little concerned. You know, another guy, Omari Spellman, you know, he's a nothing on the defensive side of the ball. I do get a little concerned about their future as far as defense is concerned. But then again, Lloyd Pierce, their head coach, was the defensive uh was a defensive mastermind for the Sixers for years before he went over to the Hawks. So perhaps that is he is there to offset that defensive deficiencies in their players. But as a whole, you look at this Hawks team, as I mentioned, you got Trey Young last year. Coming into this year, right now, their pick before the lottery is currently at five. Dallas is currently at seven. They have their own second-round pick this year. They have two other second-round picks coming, uh, one of which is from Charlotte. Um, You look at the two drafts before, or not even two drafts. You look at last year, not only did they get Trey Young, they got Kevin Herter at 19. And Kevin Herter, I am a huge fan of Kevin Herter because he's a tall two-guard who has the ability to be an elite shooter from three. Um, of course, no one is Clay Thompson, but you can see in Travis Schlenk, this former Golden State Warriors executive, having that kind of, you know, Trey Young is his, you know, quote-unquote Curry, and then Herder is the, you know, quote-unquote Clay Thompson. It's just the style of play and the prototype in the mold. I think Herder is going to be, if he's not a starter, he's a very, very high-quality role player, sixth man type, who is going to be a useful player on any NBA team for years to come because six, eight, two guards who shoot the ball at a high rate from three have value to every single team in the league. That is an incredibly valuable type of player. And especially if his defensive abilities come along, this is a starting quality player. And they got him at the 19th pick. You know, we had teams like Milwaukee pick Dante DiVincenzo ahead of him at 17th. Washington picked Troy Brown ahead of him. Um... Schlenk even said, you know, that he had been deliberating trading up to get Herder or to ensure that he could get Herder, but they got him at 19. The year before that, in the 2017 draft, their pick itself was the 19th pick, and they got John Collins. And John Collins at 19 is one incredible pick because you look at John Collins, and man, this guy is just an absolute monster. He's He has elite athleticism. He's an above-the-rim threat in the half-court and in transition. He's a rebounding machine, and he's shown the ability this year, and this is something that he has pointed out in interviews, Lloyd Pierce has spoken about. They never specifically run plays for John Collins. John Collins, whether he's able to attack the rim on a lob 
or whether he gets the ball and is able to finish inside or whatever it may be, John Collins is a guy who, just based off of his sheer athleticism and skill, is able to make himself an incredibly important, pivotal part of this offense. Now, he didn't play against Chicago last night. February 27th, he had 34-8. and February 25th against Houston, 20-12. and Phoenix on the 23rd, 19-14. You go on and on and on. This guy is a double-double machine. He is a monster rebounding the ball, and the jump that he has taken, you know, he's averaging 19.5 points per game. John Collins was never thought to be a high-quality, you know, he was never supposed to be a scorer-type player, and he's very easily at this point capable of getting his scoring average, or maybe not easily, but he's very close to getting his scoring average to 20 per game for the whole season on top of 9.5 boards per game. Um, shooting 38% from three. That's not bad. That's pretty good. So this guy going off of the mold of player that Atlanta is trying to have and build their team as having John Collins, a 6'10 athletic monster. Who's a rebounding machine. Who's a menace above the rim. Who is a menace in transition. Who can be a factor offensively in many different ways and has the ability that is growing to shoot the ball from deep. That's the perfect player for this type of system. And they got him at 19. He's better than I'm sure many people thought. Better than I thought he would be. I thought he would be a very nice, you know, like, rebounding machine type who wouldn't necessarily score a ton of points, but he'd be like an energy type, athletic type player who could be, you know, a lower tier starter. This guy is a very, very, very good player and a great fit for their system and the modern NBA. He's an offensive force. No plays or sets are even ran for him, as I've mentioned. I like DeAndre Bembray a lot. He's really coming to his own this year. Um, I like how they put the ball in his hands a lot and have him be the de facto point guard from time to time when he's in the game. Uh, You know, he had had injuries before, but this year he's really coming to his own. Uh, I think he was a little disappointing before this year. But if you look at that draft, they came out of that draft with two picks in the 20s and turned them into Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembray. Now, with Torian Prince, I had mentioned this before months and months ago, you know, I don't necessarily know if there is a long-term future with him on this team because with his contract coming up after next year, I don't know if the Hawks would prefer to take away their future flexibility and sign him to a longer contract rather than trading him to get, you know, say a low first round pick or some other stuff for him. I just can't see Atlanta taking away their flexibility to sign Torian Prince. And I think he has good value. You know, I'm sure when his name came up in trade deadline discussions this year that they had wanted a first round pick for him, which is totally justified. But I don't think that he has a long-term fit with this team just based off his contract situation and their flexibility moving forward situation. But Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembray as your two picks in the 20s. Now, I know this was before uh, Schlenk became the GM, but that's a very solid haul. Both of those guys are very, very effective players. I like both of them a lot. Omari Spellman, they like a lot. You know, I, I, he's a very one-dimensional player. I wasn't crazy about the pick. Uh, I thought it was, you know, it, it fits the mold of what they're going for, but I just don't really ever see a way that he's more, like he'll be a solid role player, which is fine. But he's going to be a pretty big liability on the defensive side of the ball for years to come. 
Um, another thing that they've done that I really, really like, and it's something that really doesn't get talked about like at all, is the way that they've used their cap in taking on bad money for picks. The picks they've taken in, they've done a great job at staggering all the stuff they're taking in. Because when you take in all these picks at once, you know, that takes up a lot of roster spots or cap space and a lot of flexibility. If you have a continuous stream of incoming second round picks or first round picks every single year, you maintain that flexibility and optionality year to year to year. And you don't have all your assets coming in at once where you have to decide right away. It's a continuous stream. It keeps on coming in. Oklahoma city first that they got in taking on Carmelo is not until 2022. Uh, they got a second and a second swap for Jeremy Lin from Brooklyn, which are in 2023 and 2025. And I, I really just look at how they've set this whole rebuild up with this athletic, high shooting mold of players, with this continuous stream of incoming assets, with the sustained ability to have cap to take on bad money to get second round picks young players whatever asset it may be moving forward and the ability with all that cap space to not only take on bad money but to make small signings here and there like they've done with Dwayne Dedman like they've done with Alex Len guys who fit the system they're trying to play with I think Travis Schlenk has done an excellent excellent job with this Atlanta Hawks rebuild that he's carrying out and I think that their future is very, very bright. We look at these bottom tier teams. The Knicks are a separate discussion because of um, them, you know, potentially getting Kevin Durant. But we look at Phoenix, we look at Cleveland, we look at Chicago, and we look at Atlanta. Atlanta is leaps and bounds ahead of those other teams as far as the attractiveness of their uh, future trajectory is concerned. And I don't really think it's close. I really don't. You know, you go past that, Memphis, it's more attractive than them. Uh, than theirs. Dallas, you know, Dallas has Doncic and Porzingis, which is a great, great duo. But at the same time, they're out their first round pick this year. They're out two future first round picks uh, in the future as a result of the Porzingis trade. So there is a trade off there to having those two star players. So you look at the NBA's bottom tier, the Hawks are set up just as well, if not better, than anyone else in that area. And continuing with the theme of the draft, just a quick look at this year's rookie class before we get into NBA, uh, the all-NBA teams and look at some of the awards, you look at this rookie class, you look at those top five picks, Eaton, Bagley, Doncic, Jackson, Trey Young, the worst of that group is the first overall pick. And DeAndre Eaton, yes, the defensive side of the ball needs a lot of work, but he is a polished player already. He's a good player already. But you look at the rest of that group, and that's not a testament to him not being... Good, because he is good. It's a testament to how good this draft is. Just looking at it, Eaton, Bagley, Doncic, Jaron Jackson, Trey Young, Wendell Carter, Kevin Knox, SGA, and Shea Gilders-Alexander, Miles Bridges, Kevin Herter, Josh Koji, Landry Shamit, Jalen Brunson, Mitchell Robinson, uh, Rodeo Oaks-Curix, and Hamadou Diallo. Right there. That is a ton of good young players, and that's not even taking into account you know, Mikhail Bridges on Phoenix has not had consistent a consistent place in that rotation to show the player that he is. Zaire Smith has not even played in the NBA yet. My, uh, Michael Porter Jr. has not even played in the NBA yet. 
You know, Elia Kobo has shown some nice moments. Javon Carter has shown some nice moments. Zanin Musa has been hurt or been in the G League a lot. He hasn't really gotten to show um, a ton yet. So there's a lot of Monty Morris. There's a lot of players out of this draft that have already shown either one that they're good, very they're very good NBA players, or two have the potential to be very good NBA players. I look in the second round. The, the fact that Mitchell Robinson, I understand that he sat out last year instead of playing for Western Kentucky, and that definitely you know uh, hindered his draft stock. But Mitchell Robinson being picked at thirty sixth, the New York Knicks got themselves a, an incredible steal at that spot. If we stay with the Knicks, you look at Kevin Knox at nine. Um, I think Kevin Knox has been you know he's been good, but I feel like I was expecting a little bit more. Kevin Knox, maybe I was expecting him to be more of this like uh, like a super athlete type, this guy who's an above-the-rim threat and is super athletic in transition. He still has athleticism, but he's not really like a super elite athlete, and he's more of a methodical player than this overpowering athlete type player. He's been solid, but I think it's reasonable to have expected a little bit more from him. I had been really big on Colin Sexton earlier in the year. You know, he's a mid-range machine, but... You can't be an NBA point guard averaging so few assists like he is with the with really no ability to play defense and not having the ability to shoot the ball from three. He's a very inefficient player, and I struggle to see, as much as I like him, I struggle to see a way that Colin Sexton can be an effective player on a winning, contending team. I, I just don't really see how that's doable. And I hope I'm wrong. And I hope he turns into this John Wall type player or Russell Westbrook type player, but I just don't see it at this point, even though I really am a huge proponent of his. Because that skill set, first off, the fact that he's really not even a facilitator or playmaker much at all, has not shown the ability to shoot the ball from three, and his mid-range game is all he's got, there's a lot to be worked on. And maybe not all of that is able to be fixed to get him to the level where he's a contributor as a starting point guard to a championship team. All right, now let's get into the fun stuff. Let's get into the all-NBA teams and some NBA awards as far as where I would rank potential candidates for these awards and these all-NBA teams, Where how I would you know, devise my 15 guys for the all-NBA teams at this point. So let's start off with the MVP race. And as much as people want to say it's a two-person race, Paul George has to be in that tier with Giannis and James Harden. This has to be considered a three-man race. Is Paul George going to win MVP? I'd be shocked. However, he has played at a level comparable to Harden and Giannis this season. At an elite level offensively, at an elite level defensively. Both sides of the ball. He's my defensive player of the year at this point. I'd be very surprised if he doesn't end up being defensive player of the year. To be able to be such an elite player and make such an impact on both sides of the ball is really, really impressive. And I don't think he's getting enough love and consideration for the incredible season that he's had because it's comparable to anything that anyone else in the league has done this season. Now, with that being said... 
even though I have them all in that top tier, Paul George is my number three in this race. And I really think between Giannis and James Harden, with Giannis being this incredible player on the league's best team, and James Harden single-handedly carrying his team into the playoff picture and keeping them at a high spot in that playoff picture, you can flip a coin on these two guys. Both guys are deserving of the MVP award. Now, a lot of how you're going to vote would depend on what you value the MVP as because Giannis is the best player on the best team in the NBA and is an elite player in so many ways. And James Harden's team, he's playing a style of play that a lot of people have criticized. I don't criticize it at all. He put the team on his back and had to do what he had to do. He didn't just get all these unassisted points just for the heck of it. He did all of these things and got all these unassisted points because it was the only way that he was going to take the Houston Rockets from 14th in the conference up to 4th and keep them within that middle range of the Western Conference playoff race since that point. He was by himself. He had no Chris Paul. He had to put the team on his back in the way that he did. He should not be penalized um, or made out to be less of a candidate because of simply doing what had to be done. And I think that that 30-point streak he had was really, really commendable and impressive. It was not a fact that he was playing selfish basketball. It was a fact that there was no other way Houston was going to win. Now, is that style of play sustainable come playoff time or for a full season? No, because you're going to get inevitably fatigued, and teams are going to dare him to get others involved. Now, with Chris Paul back, obviously the extent of of that style of play can be uh, lowered. But back to the original point, between the MVP with Giannis and James Harden, and again, like I said, you could probably flip a coin on this, but I slightly, slightly lean to James Harden. Now, I understand how incredible and significant of an impact Giannis has in the Milwaukee Bucks, how incredible of a player he is. But... James Harden single-handedly taking this team back into the playoff picture and keeping them on his own, I think for me it's just very, very impressive. And that is what gives him the slight edge in my book over Giannis. Again, I'm sure that my opinion is going to fluctuate as the season goes along, as this final stretch of the season occurs. I think if if the uh, vote for MVP happened right now, I think that Giannis would probably win. However, I think it would be close. And in my mind, I would slightly lean to James Harden. And show some love to Paul George. All right, let's keep it moving here. And just for the heck of it, the way that I would rank the other candidates outside of this top three of Harden, Giannis, and Paul George, I would have Kevin Durant fourth. I would have Steph Curry fifth. Nicole Jokic sixth. Joel Embiid 7th, Kawhi Leonard 8th, LeBron ninth, and I'll go Kyrie Irving 10th. So that would be my top 10 in order as far as the MVP race is concerned. So now let's move on to Coach of the Year. And in my mind, I think there's five coaches who you could legitimately make an argument for for Coach of the Year. 
Now, I'll do them in reverse order the way I have these top five coaches ordered from five to one. Um, in my number five spot, I have Dave Yeager from the Sacramento Kings. This is a coach who came into the season with a team with a projected win total in the high teens or low 20s. You know, a team who the majority of people, including myself, had expected to be among, if not the worst team in the NBA. And at this moment, he has them two and a half games out of a playoff spot, has them playing hard every single night, has them taking it to teams who are way better than them, and has this team playing at a very high level. He's instilled a system that really accentuates the players that they have. They play fast, the most pace in the league. They play really, really fast. They shoot the ball. They move the ball. They play inside. They play outside. I think a big knock that I used to have on De'Aaron Fox was last year in his rookie season, his big skill, I'll get into him on the most improved player discussion, but his big skill of speed, which before this season was the best skill he had, with the system that Sacramento had last year, it wasn't even able to really be um, used to its fullest advantage. This year, Dave Yeager has fully leaned into fully leaned into the youth of this team and has fully leaned into that young, fast, push-the-pace style, up-tempo style of play. And it's paid off. You look at those four games against Golden State. They took Golden State to the limit in every single game. Two of three of those games go a different way. Sacramento is in the playoff picture right now. And if Marvin Bagley were not out for a minimum of one to two weeks, I would still sit here and be saying that I think the Kings are going to make the playoffs. But with Bagley being out, I don't think they're going to get there. I think they're going to fall just short. But regardless, you look at Dave Yeager, you look at how he came into this bad team, this team that really had a glut at a lot of positions, you know, too many guys. You know, you looked at the big spot, you know, you had Willie Cauley-Stein, you had Harry Giles, you had Costa Kufis, you had Scala Bissier, you had Marvin Bagley, you had Nemanja Bielitsa. There is a glut on a lot of these spots on this team. And what Jaeger did was he found a very effective rotation that has obviously benefited them now, but is going to benefit them in the future. Because one thing he did a lot was he plays or was and still does, you know, before he got hurt, he played Marvin Bagley and Harry Giles together a lot. Now, I like Willie Cauley-Stein. I love how he has this ability to really be strong uh, when he gets fed inside to take it up for a dunk in the paint. He really takes it to the rim strong. I really, really like how he's able to finish inside, but I don't really think that Sacramento is going to re-sign him this offseason. So you're looking at the future. That future frontcourt is Harry Giles and Marvin Bagley. And those guys are already getting a lot of time together this season. That is going to serve as a foundation for the long term of this team and this makeup of this roster. So benefited them this season with their rotations, benefited their future, has this team on the precipice of the playoff picture. Number five in my coach of the year rankings, Dave Yeager. Number four, I have Kenny Atkinson from Brooklyn Nets. Um, they're six in the East right now. They're going to make the playoffs. D'Angelo Russell is having the best year of his entire career. They have this incredible system where guys like Russell, guys like Joe Harris, guys like Jarrett Allen have become so comfortable where they've really, really preached this incredible system that's developed these guys so well. 
You know, Atkinson was brought in as a coach lauded for development. You've seen that now. On talent alone, you know, you have Russell, you had Karis LeVert playing at an incredible borderline all-star level when he got hurt or before he got hurt earlier in the season. Jarrett Allen is playing very, very well. This team functions like a well-oiled machine. They've bought in. All these young guys have developed, and that's a testament to Kenny Atkinson. And the fact that they are going to make the playoffs this year is so satisfying, and I hope that they do well. Number four in my coach of the year rankings is Kenny Atkinson. Moving to number three, I've got Nate McMillan from Indiana. Now, when Victor Oladipo got hurt, uh, I believe it was January 23rd, it was January 23rd, when Victor Oladipo got hurt, I remember thinking that Indiana's season was done, they were going to fall to 5th or 6th in the Eastern Conference and lose in the first round. Since that point, Indiana is 9-7, and seven, and they are still the number 3 seed in the Eastern Conference despite the Sixers loading up and despite the Celtics being behind them. Now, I know it's a small margin of a half game over the Sixers, but they have still held that number three spot because of going 9-7 since Oladipo's injury um, under Nate McMillan. Second best defense in the league. And, you know, one thing that's impressive about that is by far the best defender on this team is Victor Oladipo. Now, you have Miles Turner as your elite rim protector behind him, but take away Victor Oladipo, and you would on paper think that this team does not really have a lot defensively. But McMillan's been able to take, I, I see this in Boyog Bogdanovich especially, he's taken Bogdanovich, this guy who really was never thought of as a defensive player, or a high-quality defensive player, he's made him a guy who they can put on the other team's best player now that Oladipo is out injured. He's found a way to balance the minutes of, you know, potential six-man of the year, Demontis Sabonis, and finally taking the leap, Miles Turner. He's found a way to balance their minutes, play them alone, play them a little bit together, and it's worked. Um, he's really maximized both those guys. He's taken this team and made them better so that now that Oladipo is out, they are still playing at a high level and have somehow stayed in this three spot. Will they end up in that three spot at the end of the year? I'm inclined to say they end up fourth, but even still, ending up fourth and ahead of Boston without Victor Oladipo since January 23rd, that is to be considered a success. Um, and with the second best defense in the league and all the things I mentioned, Nate McMillan, number three in my coach of the year rankings. We go to number two. I got Michael Malone from the Denver Nuggets. Third in net rating, top 10 in defense. And the top 10 in defense is very impressive to me because coming into the season, this was a team who everyone had identified their weak point being defense. And that was deservedly so. This was not a really that good of a defensive team and they've been a top 10 defense they're an elite offense and they are the second best team in the west and have consistently been in that position despite the fact that throughout this season injuries have incurred have occurred and affected them throughout the whole year you know will barton was hurt for a very long period of time gary harris paul Millsap, michael porter has not even played Isaiah Thomas, you know, it's to be debated how much of a factor he is, but he did not play for the majority of the season. Injuries affected this team all season long, and for a team that wasn't supposed to be that great defensively, they're a top 10 defense. Their elite offense is fantastic. Jokic is an MVP level player. Michael Malone, number two in my coach of the year rankings. And really no surprise whatsoever, 
The guy who I think has to be coach of the year at this point is Mike Boonholzer from Milwaukee. They're the best team in the NBA. He's reinvigorated their style of play. Um, they're the first in net rating. This team is firing in all cylinders. I think they're going to make it out of the East to the NBA Finals. I don't even think it needs to be expounded upon. These other four coaches have had great years, but I think it's a pretty, pretty sizable gap between the rest of them and the guy who I think is the coach of the year in Mike Budenholzer. We look at the rookie of the year. I mean, it's obviously Luka Doncic. Just to give an order outside of Doncic, I think the um, order of rookie of the year candidates behind Doncic has really fluctuated a lot throughout this year. I think right now you have to put Trey Young in there at number two. It's not these last 10 days have obviously been the best stretch of a season, setting career highs in points three games in a row. But we look at the entire season up to this point. I think Trey Young is definitely the second best rookie behind Doncic this year so far. Number three, I would have Marvin Bagley. Now, it's really unfortunate that he got hurt for at least one to two weeks. I thought that it was worse when he initially got hurt. Um, but Bagley, man, Marvin Bagley, he has shown. You know, once he gets that three-point shot to be consistent, he's going to be a walking bucket. The guy can get the ball and drive to the rim. He can score in the paint. He can get the ball and score off the dribble. He can score off a catch and shoot. And if you, with his athleticism and his ability to move, with his three-point shooting ability, you know, you run a high pick and roll with him, with him as the primary ball handler, or even as the guy setting the pick, that's going to be pretty unguardable depending on who he's running it with. So, Marvin Bagley is my number three. He has been excellent offensively. And defensively, they found a way to scheme him in to sort of hide that he's not that great of a defender. Number four, I have Jaron Jackson. And if Jaron Jackson was not hurt and pretty much shut down at this point, I'd probably have him at number two or number three. Uh, to me, Jaron Jackson is like a more athletic Al Horford. Perfect player for the modern NBA. Shoots the ball, rebounds well, can score inside. Huge fan of Jaron Jackson's. Now, if I'm Memphis, I'm not playing him the rest of the season. I see no reason for him to play a game the rest of this year. But those would be my top four rookies in the rookie ladder for the rookie of the year. Uh, with Doncic obviously being number one. Defensive player of the year, I said earlier, I think it's Paul George. I don't really even need to expound upon it. Paul George is clearly the defensive player of the year so far. But one award I really want to get into is the most improved player. Now, for the majority of the year, I had De'Aaron Fox as number one in this category, but I think it's got to be Pascal Siakam. I remember watching Toronto last year, and I was so impressed with their bench unit where they had, um, where they had Pascal and they had Fred Van Vliet and DeLon Wright, and OG ended up starting, so it was C.J. Miles, um, and then they would have either Valanchunas or Ibaka on the floor with them. Oh, no, 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 that's wrong, because they played Valanchunas and Ibaka together. Last year, the center before the trade happened was Jakob Pertl. It was Pertl, Siakam, Ananobi or Miles, DeLon Wright, and Fred Van Vliet. And I was so impressed with Siakam. You know, he just seemed to be this... You know, this four who could defend really, really well, but he just needed to add the three-point shot or to be a factor in more than just defense. And then this year, this guy was close to being an all-star caliber player. Every single meaningful category, three-point percentage, 
points per game, true shooting, player efficiency, all of those important categories, he has skyrocketed in. He plays with, he plays with such smoothness and with such poise and confidence. The guy plays beyond his years. And you can play him and have him guard essentially any position on the floor. You can play him down to five. You can play him at the four next to another big. He's so versatile and flexible. He's the perfect player from the modern NBA. And he's really, truly has become a borderline all-star player after being a solid bench guy last year. That's a remarkable jump. And being able to do it on a team as good as Toronto makes it even more impressive. So I have Pascal Siakam as my most improved, but I want to go through my two, three, and four in that category as well. We'll go to number four first, and then I'll do three and two. Um, Miles Turner is my number four. So the thing that's been the common talk and discussion with Miles Turner for me and so many other people has been, when is Miles Turner going to take the leap? When is he going to get to that next level? Because I think for up until this year, the idea of Miles Turner was always better than the reality of Miles Turner. The idea of Miles Turner was this prototypical modern NBA center who protected the rim at an elite level, shot the ball from deep, and was able to finish inside. But, yes, he blocked a lot of shots, but he was never the full package that people expected or wanted him to be up until this year. And I remember when Indiana, they signed him before this season to that four-year deal for 72 mil with incentives to get to 80. I wasn't crazy about it because basically what they stated was they thought he was going to take the leap this year. So they got out in front of it to ensure that they wouldn't have to pay him more than they did in signing him to that contract. And Indiana proved to be right in doing so. Three-point shooting is up to 40% from deep. It was at 35 last year. 40% from three is excellent. He blocks nearly three shots a game. His best skill, that's up. Um, And at this point, the idea that I mentioned of Miles Turner being this high-quality, rim-protecting, three-point shooting, finish inside center, that idea of Miles Turner is now the reality of Miles Turner. For all this talk about him taking the leap, He took the leap this year, and with Oladipo out, that leap has been an important factor, as I mentioned in talking about Nate McMillan, that is an incredible factor in Indiana still being the three seed in the East. Number three in my most improved player rankings, I have Buddy Heald. Now, before this year, Buddy Heald was a nice role player who could hit a lot of threes, was a lethal catch-and-shoot player, but he was just a nice, solid role player. You put him out there with other guys who are ball dominant so that when the defense gets drawn to them, you would throw the ball out to Heald, and he hit an open three. But he went from that nice role player to a guy who, this year, you put the ball in his hands, he's going to find a way to score at will. He'll pull up from super deep range. He'll drive and try to step back. He'll drive and hit a fadeaway. He'll drive to the rim. He'll shoot the ball in mid-range. He is a guy who you put the ball in his hands, he's going to find a way to score. He's a tough matchup for anyone you put on him. I think the the most recent game uh, against Golden State, he had over 30 points and was just a walking bucket. He hit a um, like a 30-footer, or maybe it was even like 32 or 33, to put them within striking distance late in the game. Now, Dave Yeager yelled at him for that, which may have um, made him hesitant to 
shoot another long-range three at the end of that game. That's a different story. But Heald's confidence, his ability to be this go-to perimeter scoring option rather than a nice complementary role player, that's a huge jump. He averaged 13 points per game last year. Nice. What you expect from a complementary role player. This year he's at 21. True shooting percentage from 55 to 59. So not only is he scoring a lot more and taking more shots, he's very efficient in doing so. He's an above-average creator of his own shot. You can throw the ball to him and just say, hey, get me a shot. Get me a three at the end of this game. Get me some points. He can be your go-to scoring option. And for all of the negativity about the initial DeMarcus Cousins trade made with New Orleans a couple years ago, where it was Cousins... From Sacramento to New Orleans for Heald and the draft pick that ended up being Harry Giles. What an excellent trade for Sacramento. Or was it Harry Giles? I don't remember who it turned to, ended up turning into. But the point is you got a first round pick and you got Buddy Heald, who is now a starting quality player who's an above average shot creator and is on your team for years to come. And then number two of my most improved player rankings, the aforementioned De'Aaron Fox. Coming into this year, I had never been a fan of De'Aaron Fox. In the pre-draft process and last year, I looked at him and I said, all right, his best skill is speed. Is he a great defender? No. Is he a great shooter? No. Is he a great scorer or facilitator? No. This year, he's become a good scorer. He's become a, he's, uh, what's the right word here? He's gained the ability to shoot the ball from three, become a good all-around scorer, increased his ability passing the ball has become a top-notch playmaker and is playing in a system where that skill of speed is able to be um, really, really effective and useful. Um, True shooting percentage, massive jump from 47 to 54. Has the ability to shoot threes up um, up to averaging 17 points per game. So he's taking jumps in all these different categories. And really now, if you were to look at these top prospects in the league who are under the age of 23 I'd have him number six you know I'd have Carl Anthony Towns Ben Simmons Luka Doncic Chris Stapps Jason Tatum ahead of him then I'd have De'Aaron Fox and based on the fact that he has two years left on his rookie contract you know obviously Sacramento is not going to trade him but just in a trade value ranking this guy has to be one of the most valuable trade value players in the whole league and the thing is, is he's going to keep getting better. And with his speed, his ability to play, make, and pass and distribute the ball and make those around him better, and with the ability to get to the rim, and with the ability to shoot the ball well from outside and be efficient in doing so, Darren Fox has really taken a leap this year. And now, just to close out this episode of After the Final Whistle, here on WSOE 89.3 FM or on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts, hosted by me, Brad Clear. I'm going to get into, at this point, what I think the all-NBA team should be. I'll give you my first team, second team, and third team, and then I have one honorable mention. So my all-NBA first team, I really don't think this is up for much debate. Uh, Steph Curry, James Harden as my backcourt, Paul George and Giannis as the frontcourt, and Anthony Davis as the center. All-NBA second team, Damian Lillard and Kyrie Irving as the backcourt. Kevin Durant and LeBron James 
as the forwards and Nikola Jokic as the center. And then for my All-NBA third team, my backcourt, um, you know, and I considered putting Drew Holiday in here, but I ended up going with Kemba Walker and Bradley Beal for my third team backcourt, Kawhi Leonard and Blake Griffin as my third team forwards, and Joel Embiid as my third team center. Now, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, that's, it's a very, very valid argument either way for putting either guy ahead of the other. Uh, depending on the length of Embiid's current absence with his knee injury, that could be the deciding factor in him being the third-team center and Jokic being second. Uh, but my honorable mention is Carl Anthony Towns. I think it's been overshadowed this year with the whole Jimmy Butler um, saga that happened early in the year. And then after that, sort of the lack of attention towards Minnesota as a whole— Carl Anthony Towns is very sneakily, single-handedly keeping Minnesota within range in the playoff race in the West. Now, do I think that they're going to get there? No. However, Towns has really been playing out of his mind to keep them there. You know, let, let's just take a look at his last three games. 42-17, and 37-18, and 34-21-5. and five. And then for the year, my goodness, averaging tw- basically 24 a game and 12 and a half boards per game. This guy is one of the best rebounders in the whole league, can score in the inside and out. I remember there was a, um, an NBA poll uh, that the NBA.com does every year, a GM poll. It was the year before this, so last year. And Carl Anthony Towns got the highest percentage, I think, of you know a player that you would want to build your franchise around if you got the choice of anyone in the league. This was the highest vote getter of the entire of all 30 GMs in the league. The highest vote getter was Carl Anthony Towns. And now I get that Minnesota is not a good team or really that exciting of a team so they don't get a lot of interest or attention, but Carl Anthony Towns, you got to commend him for his incredible play. And you know, we'll add another honorable mention in there and that's Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday, for this year and last, has been as close as you can be to an all-NBA caliber player without being one. And really, the only reason he's not an all-NBA caliber player, you know, there's just too many good guards in this league. It was the case last year, and it's the case this year. He scores, he passes the ball well, he rebounds, he plays top-notch defense, he can play either guard spot. He is awesome. So Carl Anthony Towns... And Drew Holiday are my honorable mentions for the three aforementioned All-NBA teams. Well, that's going to do it here for this episode of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. Thank you for listening here on WSOEpodcast.com or Apple Podcasts for the last hour and 10 minutes. Be sure to check back here on every Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. time slot on WSOE, or right after the show is over on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Thank you for listening. Shout out to you, the listener. And as always, goodbye and good night.